Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 616 with Brandon Smith. If you feel like there is a smidge too much urgency in your world, like everything's urgent, Brandon's got some pro tips on how to deal with that. So you'll learn one, how urgency is a lot like hot sauce. Two, what your boss really means when they say everything's urgent. And three, how to expertly say no. So if you want to check out your show notes or your transcript or the links to items we've referenced, you'll find that at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP616. And also, I hope you don't feel overwhelmed by all the episodes we got. 616, wow. If you feel a sense of urgency or overwhelm there, check out the Gold Nuggets, which provide summary wisdom of each episode. So you can read that in an email in about three minutes that arrive on the day an episode comes out, as well as get access to the vault of all the episodes. So you can be all the more choosy with which ones you're going to listen to in their fullness versus read more quickly. That's called the Gold Nuggets at awesomeatyourjob.com. And now here's Brandon's story. Brandon went from not being able to order pizza due to a debilitating stutter to becoming a master communicator. He went on to teach communication to leading business schools and has won 12 teaching awards for his work in the classroom. Through his work with businesses, Brandon has helped countless employees go from being on the verge of getting fired to becoming some of the company's top performers. Brandon learned the secret of urgency, what he calls the hot sauce principle, and how different people can react to it all the better. Using the right amount, hot sauce can be the very thing that turns a bland or stressful workplace into a place of flavorful productivity. He shares this wisdom in his book, The Hot Sauce Principle. Big thanks to Brandon for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Brandon. Brandon, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Pete, really excited to be on the show. Well, I'm excited to dig into your wisdom. And I was just telling you off the recording that your subtitle is so good. Your book's called The Hot Sauce Principle, How to Live and Lead in a World Where Everything is Urgent All of the Time. Everything is urgent all <laughs> of the time. Yep. You are speaking to, to my experience and the exhaustion associated with that. But I would have, I would have sort of go back in time a little bit. So you were not always a master communicator. There was a time, I'm told, that uh, you had quite the stutter and were nervous about ordering pizza. What's the the story of your transformation here? Yeah, you know. So let me tell you a little bit of the story. I I don't know if I can answer the transformation part as well, but I can at least tell you part of the story. So I was the youngest of three boys. I had two older brothers, both were adopted. 
Uh, and my oldest brother was uh, always in and out of trouble. So create a lot of kind of drama and dis- dysfunction in my house growing up. Uh, well, when I was 10, he took his own life. Mm-hmm. And during that time, it was a really kind of transformative period for myself and my family. It was a hard time. And I ended up just, I don't know why, but I ended up coming down with this stutter about six months after he died. And, and I couldn't shake it. So, and that was going into middle school, which I do not recommend. So every day before middle school, I would have to go in and see my speech therapist early in the morning. And we'd work on the letters that always tripped me up, which were the B's and the P's and the T's. So uh, then I would work on those and then go on to go on to the school day. And so, yeah, during my entire middle school career, uh, if, you, if you want to call it that, things that involved those letters were really tricky for me. I would find any way to avoid that. But when you're ordering a pepperoni pizza, there just is no escaping. Yeah. <laughs> you can't say, can you put those little things on there? What are they called again? So then you know, the, the ordering the pepperoni pizza would kind of that, that would never really end. I would just get caught in that in that stutter. And I just decided that people were just kind of messy and dysfunctional because growing up with my brother and then the way kids with stutters were treated in, in school, I thought, man, people are a mess. So I'm just going to keep distance from them. And that was kind of my high school years. Uh, really kind of made myself kind of a, a wallflower, an introvert, and then went off to college. Didn't really know what I wanted to major in. Ended up majoring in communications, ironically enough. And at some point along the way, my stutter kind of shook free, I suppose. However, I can tell you, if I get really, really tired or really, really stressed out and tired, it comes back a little bit. Yeah. Well, what a story. And, and, and I'm sorry to hear about that a difficult moment. And But it's, it's reassuring to hear that you ultimately triumphed. And, and here we are, uh, benefiting from your wisdom. And, I'm working on it, Pete. I wouldn't, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't say triumph. So I'm working on it. Working on it. Well, well, you sound great, and and you've got something important to say, and I'm excited to to hear about it. So, first, the hot sauce principle. Why don't you just define that? What's the big idea there, and where's this term come from? Yeah, you know, the big idea. What I was finding. So, I, I wear lots of hats in the world. One of my hats is I'm an executive coach. Um, another hat I, I teach at universities and business schools, and I was just finding that a lot of the people I was interacting with in the workplace didn't matter what kind of job they had, didn't matter whether they were nonprofit, for-profit, big, small, worked in the United States, worked internationally, two things were true. Time was everyone's precious resource, not money, it was time. And everything was urgent all the time. And that urgency was like hot sauce. One day it just kind of hit me. It's like, you know, it's like just being hot sauce, just poured on everything. And why I love that concept of hot sauce for urgency for lots of reasons. One, I like it because uh, a little bit of hot sauce is actually kind of a good thing. I mean, I, I like hot sauce. It adds focus. It adds flavor, makes things priority. But you put that stuff on everything. If you're like me, you're just going to be drenched in sweat, curled up in a ball, uh, not really able to function. And some people can tolerate a lot of this stuff. And some people can't tolerate much at all. So it, it's a nice, simple way of thinking about how we deal with urgency. And that sometimes it's a good thing, but too much of anything, particularly urgency, is like hot sauce. It just overwhelms us. Yeah, but, but you know, you mentioned you, some people can handle a little, and some can, people can handle a lot. That reminds me of <laughs> there was this like local comedian who was who was making a joke about how uh, some people who are really into their hot sauce will sort of demean others. He's like, "Oh, you probably can't handle this." It is like you're belittling me for having a tongue that works properly, <laughs> like. Where else does this happen with regard to, oh man, you probably don't need glasses, but I'd need huge glasses. <laughs> so 
we're going to dig into that, I'm sure, in, in terms of just how much you can handle and, and how much is optimal. And so then tell us then, you know, what would you say is sort of the most surprising or fascinating discovery that, that came about when you were, were putting together this research associated with urgency and what we do about it? I think there's probably a couple things that really are big highlights that are important for us to think about. First, that urgency is a good thing. So if, if we kind of flip into another part of the workplace world, all the experts in change management, one of the more famous ones is a guy by the name of John Cotter, teaches at Harvard. Oh, we had him on the show. Oh, you've had him on the show? Yeah. Okay, well, then you know John well. Well, well John's famous for change management. And when you look at um, a lot of the concepts he brings, in his frameworks, he says, you know what? If you want to drive change, the first place you got to start is urgency. There has to be a high enough sense of urgency. So urgency is really important when we're trying to change. My kids always joke with me because every year, about a month out, six weeks out to a month out from my uh, annual physical, I will start really doubling down on exercise mm-hmm. and health, right? And they're like, oh, here comes dad's physical again. But it's, be- it's that urgency, right? I want to show up really good for the physical creates an urgency. It, it gets us to change. So I think one big takeaway is that, you know, urgency is a really good thing. It's a healthy thing. We, we need it. As one client told me uh, many years ago, she said, I know I need a light of fire in my people, but sometimes I need a light of fire under them too. Mm-hmm. So we don't want to cut out hot sauce. But the problem is when we as leaders just think everything's urgent and we make our emotions, our anxiety, other people's problems, It's kind of like kick the dog syndrome. There's a whole new set of research studying emotions in the workplace. They call it emotional contagion. And uh, one of the big takeaways in that research is that anxiety is one of the more contagious forms of emotions. They're super, it's super, um, super uh. contagious. <laughs> so we want to make sure that we're not, you know, making other people feel that pain. That's a really, really bad thing. Oh, Brandon, you know. That rings true in my experience <laughs> in terms yeah. of, of, of anxiety. I just pick up on it. It was just like, ah. <laughs> and you think about the, the year we're in, mm-hmm. it's really easy for a leader to be really anxious about a lot of things, anxious about uncertainty, about where the business is going, anxious about their family or the health. And so are all our employees. They're all anxious too. So sometimes we actually need to be the calm in the storm. We've got to say, okay, I'm going to show calm today or peaceful today. So I don't freak everybody else out and they can focus and do their job. Okay. Well, so I'm with you. So urgency, it's, it's not bad. We need some of it, especially in order to, to make a change. If you don't got it, it's probably not going to happen. And so at the same time, though, well, hey, we're in a, a global worldwide uh, disease pandemic at the moment with COVID-19 as we speak. Uh, hopefully, people will be listening to this years from now and say, oh, I remember that. <laughs> that was a difficult time. And I'm so glad it's such a distant memory now. But uh, in addition to that, you say that uh, professionals these days are in an urgency epidemic. What do you mean by that, and, and what are the consequences of it? So the urgency epidemic is what when other people put their urgency on us, on you. They make their problems your problem. Notorious for this would be like large publicly traded companies. So shareholders and everyone else putting so much pressure on them. So you know what most C-level leaders do in those companies, I hate to say, is they just tell all their direct reports, all this stuff's urgent, you have to change it all right now. We've got to move yeah. on all of it now. And I, I was actually sitting in a, uh, in a meeting a, a few years ago with a senior leader who said this to the room, and one of his direct reports kind of raised their hand and said, well, I totally get that, boss. I totally understand, but it would help us to prioritize. So what's the priority? What's the order here? And he looked at him and he said, all of them are urgent right now, equally. Mm-hmm. 
and you could feel the room just deflate. So the, the real epidemic is everything being urgent all the time and having that pressure being pushed down on us. So it's kind of like it's, it's rather than running a marathon where you say, okay, I'm, I'm going to be done at, you know, 26.2 miles. It's like run until you drop because we yeah. can sprint, we can do urgency for a little while, but the school of thought is it needs to be more like interval training. Like you sprint, you get a little rest, you sprint, you get a little rest, not just run until you drop. And so that's what the real urgency epidemic costs us. It costs us exhaustion, burnout, and you know performance, and and lots of other things. Yes, this is very much ringing true. And oh, there's so much I want to dig into there. Uh, first, okay, maybe this is a quick one. With intervals, there's all sorts of different interval timers. I've got some of the apps on my phone, and and different recommendations for you know four minutes on, one minute off. Do you have a sense for? What is a quote unquote optimal interval if we really want to make some stuff happen and we also want to not burn out? <laughs> what's kind of the range of, hey, sprinting versus a chilling oh, ratio? Man. Yeah, Pete, this is tough. I hate to give like that classic business school answer. Uh, it depends, mm-hmm. but it really totally does depend. So, for example, if we were, let's say we were a software company and we did a product release, well, the natural time to do interval for rest would be right after the launch of a new product. Yeah. So if you're in, in that kind of a world where you have kind of like a beginning, middle, and end of something, then you want to take the break at the end. There was a, a company out in Silicon Valley a couple of years ago that tested this idea. And uh, they would launch a new product every quarter. And then at the end of every quarter, they shut down their business for a full week. So everybody could rest. So nobody worked that week. So at the end of a year, they were actually only working 11 months out of the 12 months. Because yeah. they took one week off every quarter. That first year they did it, they were they had a higher productivity and higher performance and higher revenue than the year before. There you go. While working fewer total days. Yeah. Bam. <laughs> got, yeah, fewer total days. You know, if, if you look at another example of that, you might say like in the quick service restaurant world, Chick-fil-A is number one in revenue per store. And they are only open six days a week. Mm-hmm. And they don't have the late night hours that McDonald's right. or, Neal, Taco Wendy's or Taco mm-hmm. Bell or any of the other players might have. So that's an example of interval training. They found a way to make that work in their rhythm. They did, you know, one day off a week. So I think it really depends upon the business, but the notion's really important. So I think almost a better way to think about it is if you're a leader or manager, how can you give your folks a break, you know, between sprints so they get a moment to just catch their breath? And what are some creative ways you can do it that kind of work for your world? Yeah. Well, can you give us one or two or three creative ways off the top of your head? So one would naturally be trying to find like an extra day off a week or working from home. So there are many uncomfortable things and not pleasant things that came from 2020, but there are some positives. One positive is a lot of employers realize people can work from home. And that is a huge, uh, not only morale boost and perk, but it impacts motivation if used in the right doses in in a positive Uh way. So allowing people the opportunity to work from home is probably going to be more like our new normal. My guess is if we look out in the crystal ball, we're going to see people coming into the office, you know, one, two, maybe three days a week, and then working from home the other days of the week. Uh So that's an example of interval training, giving people a little more space to get things done. Another example would be, you know, thinking about times and opportunities where you can close and turn off the whole business. So what makes this tricky is if you're going to give someone a break, you got to make sure people aren't pinging them during the break. Yeah. Like I could tell you, say, Pete, take this day off. But if customers are still calling you mm-hmm. uh, and they don't, they don't, they didn't get the memo, 
uh, right. it's not really a day off. So boundaries is really important. So this is so part of my background is I'm a trained clinical therapist and any therapist, one of their passion areas is boundaries. And to really do this thing well, interval training and intervals and protecting ourselves emergency, we've got to know how to set boundaries, uh-huh. know how to communicate that and, and say no when, when necessary. So I'll give you one more quick one. This is a personal tip that you could use. Everyone listening to this can use this. I started doing it this year really easy. I stopped emailing people on the weekends, uh-huh. period. Now, it didn't mean I didn't do work. So Microsoft Outlook is the tool I use. They have a, a function, like a lot of uh, emailing software tools, where you can schedule emails. So what I did was I would still do my work, but I would schedule all my emails to go out on Monday morning when people were actually, you know, supposed to be at work or, or working. And what I found when I did that was I wasn't getting any emails on the weekend. Because before when I would send an email, there would always be that super hardworking, ambitious person on the other end that would kick the email back with a response. Uh-huh. And then I would respond and then they would respond and they were playing an email tennis match on Saturday afternoon. Well, I didn't, I'm not playing email tennis matches anymore. And so it allowed me to really get ahead of the week and, and not feel that kind of pace and urgency. So that's a simple kind of interval training that we can all put into our, our lives. Uh, and if you're a manager, I would encourage you to tell your team that you're doing that so they don't send you emails on the weekend either. Beautiful. Okay, cool. Well, so, so already so many, so many great takeaways there in terms of you've got to have some rest. <laughs> and you can think about creative ways to do that, shut down the whole business or the whole team or have a particular days off. And, and so there's a rhythmic groove that you're in and establishing a boundary, showing up to others so that they follow up. So, so much good stuff here. I guess I also want to get your take on, it is really frustrating when someone says, all of these are urgent right now <laughs> and, and equally so. Now, in my opinion, and I'll, I want to get your take on this. One, I think when when someone communicates that, it, it's really just laziness and that they haven't actually done the work to determine what is in fact the most urgent and or important yet. Uh, that's my hot take. What are your thoughts? Does that jive with what you believe as well? Or, or how do you see what's behind that message? Yeah, well, I agree with you completely. I, I would say when we live in a world where time's our most precious resource and everything's urgent all the time, it will default us to become firefighters. Uh-huh. We're not leaders. doesn't matter people's title. Most people right now, most leaders, quote unquote, are firefighters. Yeah. And so when you're a firefighter, you're in a reactive posture. So that's what you're, what you're, what you're saying is rather than being a proactive posture and really prioritize and sit down and plan, you're just reacting to the, the stuff that's burning that day. And then you're putting that on other people. So I agree completely. It's trying to get them to shift that behavior, which is one of the many antidotes you can do when you're getting someone trying to push that on you. Well, then lay it on us. How, if, if you think everything's urgent and that really means you haven't done the thinking through to determine what's truly more urgent, how do you recommend we go about thinking through that and arriving at some optimal decisions regarding the urgency of things? Yeah, so... To help with this, for everyone listening who has a boss, I no longer want you to think of your boss as your boss. From now on, I want you to think of your boss as your number one customer or client. Okay. Because they really are. I mean, they, they are. They can decide to renew your contract or, or end your contract. <laughs> so when we do that, it all of a sudden turns on a whole bunch of other tools and competencies that we have around client management. Because really, what we're talking about is client management. You want to sit down and say, Miss or Mr. Client, our boss, I totally understand that you want to get all these things done. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. we have limited resources. 
So we have a couple options. One option is I would love to talk to you about the order in which we need to take these on and the importance of each so I can try to meet your needs with what we have. The other option is uh, we can get more resources. You know, so maybe we, you can, we can find more people to, to get this done or get better software or whatever else we can invest. So which, which path would you like to go down? Mm-hmm. Essentially, it's client management and you're forcing them to either trade off or offer more resources. That's also a boundary conversation. If you don't do that and you just say, yes, I'm going to get this done, then what you're sacrificing is yourself and your team because you'll end up needing to work to two and three in the morning in order to get it all done. Yeah. Because there isn't enough resources. There isn't enough time. So you have to have the courage to also be willing to stand up for yourself and for your team to not sacrifice yourself in the process. Yeah, and this reminds me, uh, is it called the the project management trio in terms of like the scope and the resources and the timing? And there's sort of like a triangle there. And it's like, one of them's got to shift. And, and I think scope could also maybe include quality. We could do a lot of stuff poorly yeah. <laughs> or we could do a few things really well, given how much time and how many people we have available to do those things and, and to just get very real about that. And so I, I guess I'm curious, there's all sorts of, of data suggesting that we human beings do a poor job of estimating how long <laughs> things take. How do you recommend we get a clear handle on yeah, this is really what is a manageable uh, amount for us to bite off right now versus not too much. Oh, this is a tricky one. Now, the, the simple answer is time and wisdom helps to cure a lot of those mm-hmm. ills. We, we just learn over time that, oh, yeah, I estimated that was going to take 10 hours. Turns out it took 40. That was not a good decision. Like, I have not stained my deck myself in many years. Last time I did it, it took me 40 hours. Hot dog. I enjoyed doing it, but it took me 40 hours. The next year, I hired a crew. It was like 300 bucks, and they did it in like four hours. I will never stay in my deck again. Yeah. So I think part of it is we learn over time. But the other part of this, too, is it's really important that we, if as best we can, we try and under-promise and over-deliver when it comes to things like this. Because when we don't make a deadline that we promise, we lose credibility. And when we lose credibility, it's in the book, it's part of a trust formula that I offer. We need to have trust in order to effectively push back on our manager. If she or he doesn't fully trust us or we don't have that credibility, it's going to be hard for us to push back. They're not going to listen to us. So uh, part of the way, one of the many ways we gain credibility is by kind of meeting and exceeding expectations on a regular basis. And so it's, it's, it's all about kind of managing those expectations. So for example, I, I could tell my wife I'm going to be home at six o'clock. If I come home at 7.30, she's going to be mad. If I tell her I'm going to be home at 6 o'clock and I come home at 5.30, she's going to be happy. You know, So it's just, it's just kind of managing that. So trying to think how we can do that is going to be key. Yes, and that really rings true with regard to with the trust. If, <laughs> if you try to push back and there's low trust, the boss may very well say, nah, it's not that much. You can handle it. As opposed to, oh, no, I, I really do believe that you're giving me your honest, genuine assessment of how long things take, as opposed to like you're sandbagging me because you're lazy, <laughs> you know, or, or, or something. So so that's huge. And then under promise and over deliver, that's, that's excellent. Uh, let, let's zoom into kind of the emotional difficulty associated with putting forward a... <laughs> a smaller commitment maybe than you think they want or saying no or establishing or enforcing a boundary. All these things can be a little bit emotionally uncomfortable, you know, in terms of, 
of that. And, and I just sort of, this is my personal trick. I, I remember when I was an employee and someone asked me, hey, when do you think you could have that done? I just sort of reoriented that question in my brain, not to mean, when do I really think I could have it done? To what is the latest date I can tell you just before you're going to become irritated with me? <laughs> that's fair. And that's kind of how I tried to play it. And sometimes they'd push back and I'd be like, yeah, I think I could, I could definitely have that by next Tuesday. And I meant it. I definitely could because I could probably have it three days before that. And then they'd say, mm, yeah, how about Friday? And I, that I would just sort of say something like, yeah, that's more challenging, but I still think that's doable. And, and, and then in that way, it's like, hey, I was never, I was never lying. <laughs> I was never deceptive. I just said I could definitely have it done by then because I had a great deal of confidence that I had some buffer in the schedule. And frequently they just took it like, all right, sounds cool. All right, we'll do it then. So, so that was my little trick. No, it's great. It's managing their expectations. That's, that's beautiful. That's perfect. Well, so, so that's one for me. Let's, let's hear, Brandon, what are some of your faves? In terms of managing some of those expectations? Yeah, managing the expectations, saying no, if forcing a boundary, when, yeah. when your insides want to people please and accommodate. So let's go back to like saying no. Saying no is difficult because it's a vulnerable position we put ourselves in. We don't like vulnerability because what, what are they going to do to us when we say no? Are they going to reject us? Are they going to get angry with us? What are they going to do? So we just say, well, the path of least resistance is I say yes. And just kind of keep, keep on piling and piling and piling. Now, that story ends up always ending in the same way. We have so much on our plate that we end up, starting, we end up missing expectations and starting to disappoint others because you can't just keep piling and piling and piling. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple ways that we can say no that will make it a little less emotional for us and easier. So one very helpful tip is when you're saying no, uh, that conversation should be 20% no, 80% alternate solutions to solve their problem. All right. Where we go wrong is we spend all the time, like, like you'd ask me to do something, Pete, and I'd say, no, Pete, I can't. There's all the reasons why. And I go through all my list of reasons. You know, you're not listening to my list of reasons anymore. You don't really care. You didn't like the fact That's that I right. said no. And what I've inadvertently done is I've set up a negotiation. So what you're going to say to yourself is, well, if I can counter his argument, then he has to do it. That's true. It's like, oh, well, you could do this, you could do that. How you give it to someone else. Right. I didn't mean to invite you into a micro assessment of the rest of my obligations. <laughs> Here we are. Yeah. And that's what happens. We, mm-hmm. we ended up inadvertently turning it into a negotiation. And, and so what you want to do is quickly and very, very succinctly say, no, I, I cannot, don't have the capacity to do this, but I want to help you solve this problem. So I, I've come up with some other alternate solutions to maybe get this problem solved. I want, let's work through some of these to find another, another solution that will get this completed. Uh-huh. So you can suggest colleagues, perhaps. You can suggest external resources. You could suggest moving things around. So there are, there are other options that you can, you can lay out to the table. But in a perfect world, all the other options should not involve you. Uh-huh. So you're kind of going into problem solving. Now, the other thing you can also do in terms of saying no is um, giving people a little more transparency into all the trains running on your tracks. So often when people load up, even your own boss, uh, your own manager, they, they probably have forgotten and are unaware of all the stuff you're doing. So giving them that window is, can be helpful. I had a student of mine years ago, and, and she did an internship in New York uh, in investment banking. And during that internship, she had multiple managing directors in that office, and they were notorious for coming up to her and giving her big projects. So one day, one of them came up and, and gave her a project after his uh, colleague had given her a project the day before. 
And she looked at him. She said, I'm happy to do this for you. But in order for me to do this for you, I need to go to your colleague, the other managing director, and I need to tell them I can't do their project that they gave me yesterday because I'm doing yours instead. Are you comfortable if I have that discussion? Mm. And they looked at her and they said, never mind. <laughs> so sometimes showing people what you have going on and, and letting them know who, you, who you're going to have to tell no to in order to tell them yes can also reshift the focus. Because now we're getting into politics and all of a sudden this person could put themselves on a political limb that they didn't realize because now you're going to tell their boss no so, they can, so you can do their project or, or whoever that person may be. Yes. And I like that so much because it's honest, it's real, it's genuine. And then sometimes the person you communicate, you'd be like, oh, not a problem. Happy to do that. You know, and then, and then you learn something from that. It's like, oh, I, huh, funny. Because from the outside looking in, it had seemed like those two projects were of equal importance. But apparently, <laughs> you know, one of them is way higher. Yeah. I didn't even know that. Yeah. And by having had that conversation and learned that, you know, you're gaining some of that wisdom that, that kind of say, oh, okay, this is what's really important here and, and, and what is, is most valued in this, this team or organization. Yeah. So if we go back to one of our bigger meta principles today, it was about forcing prioritization. Mm-hmm. Don't let everything be urgent all the time. Everything can't be equal priority. That's when we get overwhelmed and burned out. We need to in a very kind of geeky way, we need to be able to line stuff up in a process kind of way and say, okay, what do I start with first? What's first priority? And second, uh-huh. third. And by the way, the, the leaders and the companies that have really done the, the best job of keeping everybody focused and aligned during this whole time in 2020 have had anywhere between three and no more than five priorities. They've been operating off of a very yeah. set list of three to five. They haven't made everything urgent all the time. They've said, no, these are our big things we're going to focus on. Everybody line up around these. And it, it calms people's anxiety, gives people focus. It's like just that right amount of hot sauce. Okay, so yes, that, that three to five is great. The, the force prioritization is powerful. Uh, one way is to just say, hey, I could do that, but if, in order to do that, I'm going to have to do, drop this. And sort of you share sort of the, the constraints. What are some of your other favorite ways of, of forcing a prioritization? So when you're thinking about going to your boss, it helps when you bring a menu. So uh, rather than say, what do you want me to do? Okay, we, we want to be a little more on the author seat and we want to bring them a menu. Say, I've got three different options for you today. Which one of these would you like to go down? Which path? So that's another way that we can force prioritization is by offering options. You'll learn a lot from people based on what they choose off that menu. Mm-hmm. So it, the, kind of the common example is I, I always feel bad for the uh, creative types in the world because they routinely get customers that say, you know, I don't know what I want, I'll, I'll, but I know it when I see it. Yeah. Kind of like forces you to just do all this guessing. But then if, if you bring them three options, say, well, which one of these do you like better? People can't always react to a menu. So spending that little extra effort in creating a menu will also teach you a lot. You'll learn a lot about what the incentives and motives are, and uh, it'll help you kind of know what path you want to go down. I love that. And when I'm a manager, I, I like that as well in terms of, that's sort of something I ask people to do is, okay, hey, you know, each day, send me a, a quick email on what you did today and what you plan to do tomorrow. And then that really helps me because one, I could say, oh, huh, no need to do that. <laughs> let's, let's do this instead. So I, I get the, the heads up and so we can redirect as necessary. And it, it helps me get a sense of well, what, what are their preferences, their strengths, their desires, what would they naturally kind of flow to, as well as their judgment in terms of it's like, oh, you seem to be under the impression that that is really 
very important and slash urgent to me. And it's not. So <laughs> we can have that conversation. Say, hey, actually, we're, we're totally all set on that front for a couple months. So we can go over here. Like, oh, okay, great. Didn't know. All right, thank you. So I like that. The menu. Very good. So that made me think of something. Another tip. So we just spending a lot of time with tips as kind of the employee kind of dealing with the manager. But there are tips about being a more effective manager in this stuff. So I'll tell you my favorite example that came from a client. So I was talking about this idea of urgency and hot sauce. He had a, a, a small technology company, about 50 employees, an anxious guy as it is. And so he was just bringing that anxiety into work every day. I mean, everybody was just so wound tight because he was so wound tight. So I shared this idea of hot sauce and urgency and gave him a little one of my little bottles. I, I buy these little Tabasco bottles in bulk and hand them out to, to people. And so he went out to the grocery store and he bought three bottles of hot sauce, stuck them on his desk, bang, bang, bang. And every time he had an initiative or project that was urgent, when he assigned that project, he would hand that owner of the project a bottle of hot sauce to hold on to until the project was done. Mm. And why that was such a great, really great tip and technique that he did is because he only had three bottles to give out. So yeah. once all the bottles were given out, that's it. He can't make anything else urgent until someone gives a bottle back. Yeah. So thinking of forcing mechanisms like that that you can do is also another another way for you to manage the flow of hot sauce on your teams. Well, so good. Well, Brandon, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. The only other thing that I would say is also important when we think about hot sauce is just as managers and leaders, just being intentional. What really is important and making sure we're communicating that one of the interesting little missteps I find with senior leaders, when we talk about things like executive presence, one of the uh, more common missteps that people don't realize they're doing is they talk out loud a lot or they think out loud a lot. Oh, to their teams. Yeah, to their teams. Mm -hmm. And what they're just thinking out loud, but their teams are interpreting that as an urgent priority and they go off and start doing work and they bring them back a PowerPoint deck the next day or recommendations or something else. And the manager looks at him and says, I was just kind of just, just talking. I didn't really want you to do anything. So just being really intentional about what you're asking folks to do is an important takeaway too for managers. So you can keep everybody focused and, and aligned and just that, that right amount of urgency. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, now can you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? One of the ones I've been, I actually mentioned a couple times this week, they've attributed it to, to Mark Twain, but no one, I don't think anyone really knows who said it. But it goes like this. I would have written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have enough time. I love that quote because it emphasizes how hard it is to get to finish thinking. Yeah. How hard it is to have that, that very concise, like, this is what I want. And when time's our most precious resource and everything's urgent all the time, we tend to kind of dump our thinking on people. So that's my favorite quote for at least this week. All right. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Probably the one that is jumping out for me right now is about three or four years ago, a group of researchers studied this question. What's the worst kind of boss to work for? And I thought they would have come back with the angry, yelling, and screaming boss. That wasn't number one. Micromanager wasn't number one. Ghosting boss wasn't number one. Then the worst kind of boss to work for, the highly inconsistent boss, hmm. or like the unmedicated bipolar boss, because you never knew what you were going to get on a given day. So I thought that was really fascinating because it really speaks to the importance of consistency because anxiety at work comes from a lot of uncertainty and unpredictability. It's one of the reasons why it's such a contagious emotion. So we can prevent a lot of that if we're consistent and predictable. So that's my, one of my favorite pieces of research. It's come out in the last few years. All right. 
And how about a favorite book? But one recently that I've continued to go back to is Daring Greatly from, from Brene Brown. So uh, she's got a whole bunch of books kind of all in the same kind of genre and theme. Uh, but I like the, the study and depth around vulnerability. It's so important to us building relationships and even us being more effective as leaders. So I, I continue to find myself going back to that one. And how about a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? If I think of a simple one that everyone can do, scheduling your emails. Simple tool. Mm-hmm. Simple, simple. So powerful, saves you so much time, saves you so much anxiety. Now, I would say in uh, more recent years, the ability to learn how to hand things off to others who are better at it than you is a kind of tool. And I found it's gotten me happier, gained me more leverage, and really allowed me to do the stuff that only I can do. So uh, that's, I'm a big believer in finding ways to do that. And how about a favorite habit? Exercise. I've always enjoyed exercise and working out, but I've been really doubling down on that the last month. So I've been finding it's been yielding a lot of results. Maybe that's because I just had my annual physical. Right, right. Mm-hmm. We're coming full circle, but that's one that I think is really, really important. And is there a particular nugget you share with folks that really seems to connect and resonate with folks and they repeat it back to you frequently? Simple nugget. Going to be something I'm going to be writing about in the future. It's distinction between being an author and editor. And we've touched on it a little bit today. But in every dynamic between a manager and a direct report, there's always someone who sits in the author seat and someone who sits in the editor seat. And knowing what seat to sit in is key. So as the manager or leader, you want to spend the majority of your time in the editor seat, uh, which makes a lot of sense when you think about your great all-time direct reports. They, they would come to you and say, hey, Pete, there's a problem. Here's what I think we should do about it. I'd love to get your thoughts. They're authoring a solution for you to edit. But uh, where we get stuck sometimes or tricked sometimes is we'll have a direct report say, what do you want me to do? And what they're doing is they're baiting you into authoring so they can sit back and edit. They can say, well, mm-hmm. it's not my fault it didn't work out. He told me to do it that way. Right. So making sure that we're sitting in that editor seat as a leader is really important. It'll save us time and it'll make our teams better because it promotes ownership, initiative, and critical thinking with them. And then with our boss, we want to make sure we're sitting in the author seat, bring them ideas, bring them a point of view to, and a recommendations that they can react to, uh, which again goes back to some of our comments earlier around how to more effectively manage our boss. And if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where'd you point them? It's very simple. You can Google the Workplace Therapist. That's my handle, and I'm the only one. So you can go to workplacetherapist.com. That's where my blog is, podcast. We can get a copy of my book. Of course, it's also available on Amazon and other places where you might purchase a book. So, uh, and the, again, the title of the book is The Hot Sauce Principle How to Live and Lead in a World Where Everything is Urgent All the Time. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? I think, particularly right now in 2020, I would say there's two. First, make sure you're setting healthy boundaries because while people are, are have been working at home and from home, we're seeing a lot of boundary creep. So mm-hmm. making sure you're setting healthy boundaries and communicating that, that's really, really important. The second thing that I would add too is making sure you're finding ways to remind your boss and other leaders of the value that you're providing. Mm-hmm. We're not invisible. We're not in front of them every day. And no one likes to self-promote, but at the same time, we need to make sure that our, our bosses recognize the value that we're bringing. So we don't get passed over for that promotion or we don't get um, looked over for new opportunities. So those would be two tips to particularly apply today. Brandon, this has been a treat. I wish you much luck and all the things that have hot sauce on them. (laughs) Thank you. I really enjoyed coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for all the great questions. I really enjoyed it. I really like Brandon's perspective about rethinking your relationship to a boss, not so much as boss, but as your most important client. 
which is one, true, and two, just as he says, activates a whole new set of skills. I think it brings all the more into focus the fact that you have choice in the matter in relationship. You are not sort of a slave or fully obligated to 100% have to do everything they ask for, but rather, you know, this is an important relationship, someone you want to keep happy and, and delight, in, if at all possible, but, you know, they're one client in worst case scenario, if uh, your client fires you, <laughs> you can you can get some new clients, but most likely it's not going to come to that. You can simply realize, hey, you know, here's some some trade-offs, some concerns, some other things on my plate. Here's the top priority stuff we talked about. Those might be at risk. What are you thinking? It really does open that up in, in a quick and easy way with, with one reframe. Your boss is not so much your boss, but your top client. Good stuff from Brandon. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP616. If you haven't already, I recommend you push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest, David Cadaby. He has got some perspective on productivity, how it's not about time management. It's about mind management. We spoke to him, boy, when the show was but a pup, a youngster, well over 500 episodes ago. Well, he's got some new insight and I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. Hope to catch you there and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, Check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.